All right, we are going to be in Philippians chapter 3 this morning, again in our series here uh, focused on the theme of joy, choose joy. Uh, It's certainly, again, been one where I've gotten a lot of feedback on the subject matter, um, a lot of questions, what does this look like practically, Um, how does it intersect with my propensities towards depression or anxiety. Um, sometimes as a pastor, I'm having to, you know, begin a sermon by helping you understand why you need to listen, why you need to hear what God's Word is saying, I'll help you connect the dots, <laughs> because we don't often realize what we need to hear, what we need to know. Uh, I think in this area, we know that we, we long for joy. We don't want to be depressed. We don't want to be discouraged. We don't want to be paralyzed by anxiety. There's sort of a natural... Um, Connection. This, this topic resonates with where we're at. We want true satisfaction and significance and security. We want steady confidence, you know, that allows us to uh, weather even the most difficult circumstances. Um, I'll be honest, this morning, I've, I've been discouraged this morning. And I have a little bit of depression tendencies and I was thinking about it actually in light of the fog. I don't know how early, if there was still fog out there when you were getting here. When I was getting here at 7.30, uh, it was a dense fog out there. And uh, that maybe represented my, my state of mind. I got to thinking about that, you know. And the sun comes out. We need the sun of the light of the gospel to dispel <laughs> the, the darkness that sometimes settles over our hearts. And... Um, so we get the joy again to, to look at, at God's word, to think of how this type of joy is, it's, it's what God wants for us. Paul's calling the church to joy, and we see how to cultivate it. And today we're going to even see some of the threats to joy, the things that we need to be aware of that can rob us of our joy or steal our joy. And so uh, our joy to turn to God's word. And given my current state of mind, I'm going to ask that we pray and ask God to, to meet with us today, to allow his powerful word to do uh, its thing today. God, thank you for the opportunity to gather uh, God, I feel very weak. I uh, feel, um, have just felt sort of a, a darkness over my mind here today, and I can't uh, explain it. I don't know why that is, but I'm confident and thankful, God, that your word is powerful. Um, I, I, I'm not powerful, but your word is powerful, and we pray that the, the sun, the light of the gospel, <laughs> would dispel uh, the, the, the fog that is in my heart today, and I pray that for my brothers and sisters as well, that we would be in the midst of such a, such a down culture and society, such a jaded world, so many things to be discouraged about, that God, the beautiful light of the gospel would cut through it all, and that you would give us, God, true, enduring, abiding joy. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So Paul uh, extends here in chapter 3, verse 1, another call to joy. He did it once in uh, chapter 2, verse 18. He's going to do it again twice in chapter 4, verse 4, where he extends this great call. So Philippians 3, 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord. Uh, as we just think about that simple command, I want you to notice that it's a command. Uh, the implication being that joy is a choice. 
It's something that I can choose to, to embrace, to obey, to, to choose joy, or I can choose to remain in darkness and discouragement. Uh, we've noted that joy is the emotion of hope and a confident trust. It's rooted in something. It's grounded in something. So it's not just try to feel better about your situation, look on the bright side, try to see a silver lining. No, there's, a, there's, a, there's something underneath of our joy that sustains it and fuels it. And Paul is calling them to rejoice. Um, so we're responsible for the attitude that we embrace. We can choose to dwell on what is untrue, what is degraded, what is dark, or we can choose to direct our thoughts around what is true and pure and beautiful. And so I think some cases we have to just think about too, what, what, what's informing my thinking? What am I choosing to dwell on? What kinds of movies am I watching? What's on my playlist, right? What am I reading? Uh, these are things that are going to help direct my thoughts in certain directions. And so Paul is urging them to rejoice. We certainly also see in this little simple uh, exhortation that, that Paul wants them to rejoice in the Lord. Right? They were not to find their joy in their circumstances, uh, but in the Lord. He wanted them to, um, to understand their salvation Uh, the fact that they have been joined to Christ, the fact that they have experienced forgiveness of sins, that they've come to peace with the God who created them, that they have uh, a sense of purpose for living, a sense of hope for the future. Uh, Find joy in the Lord, all right, in your salvation. Uh, The other thing that that stands out to us right here at the outset is uh, how Paul frames it. He says, finally, My brothers, rejoice in the Lord. So it's a transitional word, and it's a word that that does point towards conclusion. Um, It seems a bit odd that Paul says, finally, even though we're only halfway through the letter, right? We're just into chapter 3 of a four-chapter letter. Um, It's kind of like the preacher who says, in conclusion... And then goes on for another half an hour, right? So, but in some sense, Paul is kind of branching into a new thought here, and it's one that's going to kind of carry us through to the end of the letter. Rejoice in the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. So that's the call, very simple call again to joy. Uh, and then at the end of verse 1... Through verse 11, um, we have what I'm calling the cultivation of joy. Paul is concerned that they will miss the joy that God has for them. There are some threats to joy. Joy must be protected and nurtured. And Paul sees some things on the, on the horizon that could get them off track. So he's, he's helping them here to cultivate A life of joy. And he does that in three ways. This is going to be our very simple outline today. He extends a stark warning. He extends a simple, gentle reminder. And he relates a personal testimony. And all three of these are intended, again, to help them cultivate a life of joy. To not get sidetracked. 
or to allow anything to steal their joy. So first, a warning. Uh, Again, chapter 3, verse 1. Let's pick it up there. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So, a warning. Uh, And Paul acknowledges that he's actually already warned them about this um, previously. I think he might very well be referring to what he said back in chapter 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So Paul had already mentioned to them about opposition, about some type of enemy, somebody who was standing in their way, and then he comes into chapter 3 and he's going to talk a little bit more about them, warning them about false teachers, and he says, I've already talked to you about this, but I'm going to talk to you about it again. I want to remind you of it. Uh, We are prone to forget, right? It's good for us to rehearse certain things. Paul says, essentially, I'm not going to tell you anything new right now, but I'm just going to remind you of what you already know. And we need that, right? These believers need that. We need it. So Paul is going to extend a couple of warnings. He wants them to be on the alert, to be vigilant uh, about these particular people. Three times he says, look out, look out, look out. (laughs) Beware, beware, beware. Watch out for, watch out for, watch out for. There's danger ahead. And Paul uses three graphic titles to describe these individuals. He calls them dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. What in the world is Paul talking about here, right? What does he have in mind? It's clear that he's talking about the Judaizers, These were Jewish people who were teaching that you had to be circumcised according to the Jewish law, ceremonial law, in order to be saved, right? So it becomes very clear. This is is who uh, Paul has in mind. Now, when Paul uses these titles, he's not just trying to be degrading or angry or just throw names at them. When he uses these titles, he's, he's communicating certain characteristics that these individuals have. So he says, first of all, they were dogs. Uh, dogs were not lovable animals in the ancient world. Okay, You didn't own a dog. Nobody owned a dog. Dogs were... You know, scavengers, they were roaming the streets looking for scraps. So this is the imagery. As a matter of fact, in a Jewish context, dogs were a reference to Gentiles, to non-Jewish people, to unclean people. As a matter of fact, Jesus had a conversation with a Syrophoenician woman, a non-Jewish woman. This is recorded in Matthew chapter 7, and you might remember that Uh, Jesus makes reference to her as one of the dogs 
He wasn't trying to be derogatory to her. He wasn't trying to demean her. She understood that. She didn't take it as a vulgar insult. It was simply a statement about her religious status. She was an outsider. She didn't have a home. She was scavenging the streets. And she was smart enough to say to Jesus, I know you're not focused on the dogs, the outsiders, but even the dogs get to eat the scraps from the table. Even the dogs might get a little bit. And Jesus commended this outsider for her great faith. But, but that's the context. Dogs were Gentiles, unclean people. And Paul, in a very interesting way, labels these Jewish Judaizers as dogs, as unclean. He calls them evildoers. Which again is a bit ironic because they were very observant of the Jewish law and external rituals. They were doing everything, going over and above to be righteous. But Paul says, you're still sinners. (laughs) You can do all of these external things, but you're still sinners before a holy God. God's law is good. It's meant to be obeyed. But Paul says in Romans 3 that it, it, it merely reveals our sinfulness it's not it's not a mechanism for salvation i can never hope to achieve all of god's laws to satisfy his perfect holiness the law essentially exposes my sin so i know you're law keepers and you're really big on the law but you're sinners you're still evildoers and then he calls them mutilators of the flesh which is actually a word play here He's going to talk about circumcision, which means to cut around. But this word that Paul uses means to cut to pieces. By insisting on circumcision for salvation, they had made it into some sort of religious ritual, like the bizarre cutting of the pagans who would do these things to try to get God's attention So Paul turns things on their head. These observant Jews were actually the unclean ones. right? And so Paul's warning them, don't let anyone sneak in and try to add something to the gospel to create additional requirements to be saved. Now, when Paul planted the church in Philippi, there were not even enough Jewish men to constitute a synagogue. If you go back to Acts chapter 16, you'd find that you know, Paul usually would go to a synagogue. That was his first place where he would go and, and teach from the scriptures. But there wasn't, you had to have 10 men to form a synagogue. There wasn't even 10 Jewish men in Philippi. So not a big, a big Jewish presence here in this city. But it seems that maybe that situation had changed. Uh, we do know that the Judaizers had followed Paul around from city to city, trying to infiltrate churches and turn people back to the law of Moses as a means of salvation. So Paul wants them to be on alert for this type of teaching that would undermine the gospel of God's grace. Trying to achieve righteousness through religious observance was a path away from joy to guilt, condemnation, and bondage. There's a phrase uh, I recently became 
aware of uh, called the butterfly effect. And it basically is a way of saying that a small thing can have big consequences, right? The, the, can the flap of a butterfly's wing uh, end up uh, building toward a, 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 a typhoon, you know? <laughs> a, a little thing becoming a big thing, a butterfly effect. And uh, Paul seems to have this in mind. He knows that just a little subtle tweaking of the gospel can totally change the gospel is the gospel by God's grace alone or is it by God's grace plus circumcision or plus this little requirement and Paul says look out look out look out beware 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 of any subtle tiny change or addition to the gospel that would change the gospel and no longer make it good news, right? Lead you back into bondage, get you back on the gerbil wheel of having to work to please God, right? Don't let anyone rob you of God's grace. So this is the the, the warning that is extended to us. Now, most of us are not, you know, tempted to find our security or our joy in observing the ceremonial law. But we are often tempted to find our identity in human effort, right? We can subtly put stock in our accomplishments, in our giving, in our church attendance, in our Bible knowledge. I can, at different times, get beat myself up over my sin, right? My persistent sin. And especially, I, I've been a Christian for this many years, and I ought to be beyond these things. And, and I can even struggle to maybe go to God in prayer because I think God doesn't want to hear from me. You know, I, I, I sinned again. I lost my temper. I, I said what I shouldn't have said here. And I have to just remember, God never loved me because I was so great, and he didn't love you because you were so great either. <laughs> but subtly, that can sort of creep in, this, this sense that we have to do certain things to please God, to earn standing with God. It, it's a subtle thing, but it can creep in. And one of the temptations with, with that kind of thinking is that it allows me to retain some measure of my own pride and dignity, right? That, that, I like that. <laughs> But the gospel cuts across all of that attempt at human effort and forces me to come to God and approach God as a beggar receiving grace. So Paul cautions them, don't let anything come in that would steal or rob the grace of God. Or distort the gospel. So uh, it starts with a warning there. That's one of the, one of the ways we cultivate joy. We, we don't allow any other legalistic requirements to rob us of our relationship with God that is achieved by grace. Okay? So a warning. And then a reminder, uh, beginning here in verse 3. Actually, I pick up in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For or because we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 
So he reminds them of who they are. Don't let these people dissuade you, for we are the circumcision. Now, Paul uses a, a very carefully chosen pronoun here, we, right? He's referring to himself, and he's referring to these believers in Philippi who were predominantly Gentile. And he says, we are the circumcision. Now, again, these Jewish teachers were trying to insist that the Gentiles be circumcised, right? To conform to Jewish laws in order to be saved. And Paul essentially says, we are circumcised. Right? Even these Gentiles. Paul's not speaking of physical circumcision. He's speaking of circumcision of the heart, So circumcision was a physical act, right, for the Jewish people. The removal of the foreskin from the male reproductive organ. But it was always intended to point to something deeper, to a deeper reality. We can look at several passages, but here's one. Again, an Old Testament context written to circumcised people, the Jewish people. But they're being told, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So this idea of circumcision has to do with a cutting away of the flesh, and it's, it, 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 it somehow pictures repentance and the shedding of blood and, 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 and the cutting away of the old, and this is what God wants to happen in the heart. So it's pointing to repentance, and Paul essentially says that these Gentile followers of Jesus are circumcised. They have been purified. They have been marked as God's people at the deepest level, at the level of their heart. And he goes on to explain why he says that, why he says that they've been circumcised. He says, we worship by the Spirit of God. We worship by the Spirit of God. We approach God by means of the Spirit. The Spirit has done this internal work of purifying the heart. Paul develops this in Romans 2. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. So here's again, is this imagery, right? The circumcision of the heart. Not just an outward circumcision, but the circumcision of the heart, which is accomplished by the Spirit of God. So we get a wonderful glimpse here into the, the, the nature of salvation, right? God the Father has determined our salvation, has determined to make a way of salvation in eternity past, to make a way that we could have our sins forgiven. The Son has accomplished redemption. The Son has entered into time and space, took on human flesh, paid the penalty for sin, lived a righteous life, uh, credited his righteousness to our account. But it's the Spirit who actually applies the work of redemption, who does the internal work to change our hearts And so Paul makes a wonderful statement here that we are able to worship by the Spirit of God. We can only approach a holy God because we have been thoroughly cleansed from the inside out. 
We worship by the Spirit of God. We boast in Christ Jesus. Our boasting, our confidence is not in ourselves, but in Christ. We don't come before God promoting our own righteousness, but pointing to the righteousness of Christ, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's not about what we have done, but about what Christ has done. And we put no confidence in the flesh. We don't depend on some outward ritual. Again, this was the problem with the Judaizers who were requiring physical circumcision for salvation. They were depending on their own achievements instead of the righteousness of Christ. Nothing wrong with circumcision. Paul had been circumcised as an observant Jew. But as soon as you make it a requirement for salvation, you undermine the gospel of God's grace. So Paul says, don't, he issues the warning, don't, don't get off track, don't allow anyone to, to put you back in bondage, to sort of rob you of God's grace, or to add additional requirements that are only going to leave you uh, discouraged and defeated. <laughs> Remember that you are the circumcision, you are the ones who have been made clean by the blood of Christ through the work of the Spirit, boasting pointing to Christ and his righteousness and not your own, right? So he he warns them about these enemies, but he reminds them about their status. Jim Caldwell was the coach of the Lions for four years. The only coach, by the way, to have had a winning record. 36 and 28. And he led them to their most recent trip to the playoffs in 2016. And then in 2017, after a 9-7 and seven season, which is pretty good for Lions standards, Jim Caldwell was let go. I would contend they didn't know what they had in Jim Caldwell, who was a pretty good coach. And things went downhill after... 2017. And my point is, we can sometimes very easily lose sight of what we have. We can be looking at all these other things, or tempted by this, or some offer here, and we can forget what we have. And in this case, what we have in Christ. We've been made right with God. We've been circumcised in our hearts, made clean through the work of Christ, applied by the Spirit of God. And uh, we would do well to remember uh, what we have in Christ. Paul reminds them of it here. So a warning, a stark warning, uh, a gentle reminder of what they are in Christ. And finally, personal testimony. Paul shares his story in order to drive the point home. Philippians 3 verse 4 Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul had a stellar religious resume, right? He was outwardly impressive. By any sort of external measure, Paul was a righteous man. He was circumcised on the day required by the law. He was Jewish. His parents were Jewish. He was ethnically Jewish. He was born into the tribe of Benjamin. So not only was he, uh, was he Jewish, he was born into a prominent tribe. The first king of Israel came from uh, the tribe of Benjamin. And actually, Paul was named after King Saul, that first king. He was thoroughly Hebrew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, which probably means that his bloodline was pure. It probably means that he not only was Hebrew ethnically, but he spoke the language. He read the Hebrew scriptures He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee, literally a separatist. He was one who had gone over and above the base requirements of the law. He was serious about his faith, zealous, even to the point, again, of persecuting those who would in any way challenge his faith. And he was blameless, which is not to say that he was sinless, but that he was observably righteous according to the outward requirements of the Pharisees. I mean, to look at him, you couldn't poke a hole in him. He did everything he was supposed to do. He was blameless. If anyone could feel good about his achievements, it would be Paul. (laughs) But he came to realize that those valuable things were repulsive compared to gaining Christ, compared to what he had found in Christ. Paul makes three rapid-fire statements in verses 7 and 8 that build in intensity. Whatever I gain, uh, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So these things I thought that were really... uh, Boy, boy, these were, these were things that um, I had accomplished, and when I came to, to, to know Christ, I realized they were nothing, right? I, I, I counted them as loss. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So all the things I just got finished listing, I counted those as loss, and anything else you want to add to that list by way of human accomplishments, I also count that as loss as well. <laughs> And then the end of verse 8, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Not only have I counted those things as loss, I count them as rubbish, uh, which is a pretty sanitized version of this word, right? I count them as, as refuse, as excrement, as dung, as sewage. compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
So Paul says, hey, I've, I've been to the top of the, the mountain, as it were, of, of human accomplishments. And let me just tell you that none of that compares to what we have in Christ. Again, he's just sharing, not, not just by warning, by way of reminder, but now by way of his own story, his own testimony. And he traces it out in verses 9, 10, and 11 of what he has in Christ. Really beautiful unpacking of all the blessings of the gospel, right? Justification. He says there that he was found in Christ in verse 9. A clear statement about the fact that he had been given a new standing. He was clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He, he was in a right relationship with God. He was found in Christ. Accomplished fact, right? He describes sanctification. It says that he experienced uh, the power of Christ's resurrection. He's describing uh, a dynamic that was at work in his life, right? Paul's life was, was being transformed. He was seeing God change other people's lives through the proclamation of the gospel. He was seeing, isn't this amazing how he puts it, the, the same power that raised Jesus from the grave, the life-giving power was now uh, at work in Paul's life, changing him and changing other people. I think a reference again to not just a point in time uh, act of salvation, but an ongoing work of sanctification and then glorification. Here Paul talks about his union with Christ, uh, that he uh, was joined to Christ in such a way that he would share in Christ's suffering, which doesn't sound so great, right? We don't relish that. But not only sharing in Jesus' suffering or joined in such a way that he was walking with Jesus in his suffering, but also walking with Jesus and joined to Jesus in such a way that he would also share with Jesus in his resurrection. That just as Jesus was raised from the dead, so Paul would be raised from the dead. That is, that is hope, my friends. That is a confident thing to be able to face even death with, with confidence knowing that death is not the end, that we have been joined to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And that's another aspect of salvation that we don't often think about, what's, what's called glorification, is how God's going to work that out in the future. So Paul just says, compared to all my great accomplishments, they are nothing. They are less than nothing. They, they re repulse me when I think about the fact that I clung to those things so deeply. And I tried to find my significance in those things, and they're nothing. They're horrible compared to what I have in Christ. Right? So he warns them. He reminds them of their standing in Christ, and he shares his, his story uh, with them. Augustine lived uh, in a moral life. Some of you know a little bit of his story. Uh, he was third, fourth century. We know him as a great leader in the church. He wrote uh, a number of, of, uh, of things that have been of help to the church down through the years. But that's not how his story started. Matter of fact, he was, um, he was an, a, a deeply immoral man. He lived a very sexually promiscuous lifestyle. His mother, Monica, had been praying for him uh, but seemingly to no avail. 
And he, really, really that became one of the reasons why he didn't want to surrender his life to Christ, because he didn't want to give up all the things that he enjoyed in life. And eventually, Augustine came to realize uh, that all the things he was pursuing to make him happy would never make him happy. a matter of fact, all the things he was pursuing were keeping him from being happy. <laughs> this is what he said. Whoever enters into you, speaking of God, whoever enters into you enters the joy of his Lord. There he will fear nothing and finds his own supreme good in God who is supreme goodness. I slid away from you and wandered away, my God. Far from your steadfastness, I strayed in adolescence and I became to myself a land of famine. In my attempt to gorge myself, I was hungry. I was starving. And Augustine would go on to say, our heart, here now he extends the principle, right, beyond just himself. He says it broadly, our heart is unquiet until it rests in you. We can be like Paul trying to find our identity in in our accomplishments, or we can try to find it in wealth, or we can try to find it in pleasure, or we can try to find joy in all these different avenues which our culture is desperately pursuing, right? We are a culture bent on entertainment. They are seeking out joy. The whole health and nutrition industry, trying to turn back the clock, you know, of time. Uh, Our culture is looking for joy and finding it elusive. (laughs) And Paul's story here, hey, I've been to the mountaintop. I've tried to pursue significance and security in a lot of different ways. I'm just telling you, The only place that it's really found is in Christ. So again, he's helping them to cultivate a spirit of joy. Jesus told the parable of the lost son. Luke 15, you'll remember that account. The younger son uh, demanded his inheritance, turned his back on his father, went off into the far country, wasted all he had been given, and was brought to a state of utter humiliation, right? Feeding the pigs, something a a self-respecting Jewish man would never do. But that humiliation was the best thing that could have happened to him, right? It brought him to the end of himself, and his humility allowed him to be restored into a right relationship with the Father. He He came home with his tail between his legs, And the father was waiting to receive him and to extend grace. The real tragedy of the story involves the older son, right, who never left home. He was outwardly compliant. He had a strong resume. But his pride blinded him to his true condition. He saw himself as superior to his younger brother. While the younger son was restored, the older son refused to join in the celebration, right? He's on the outside And that's how the story ends. The older son is estranged, not just from his brother, but from the father. Josh read for us out of Revelation chapter 3, the church in Laodicea, a church who thought they were rich when in essence they were poor. A church that thought they could see when in essence they were blind. They just didn't know it. They were self-deceived. And I think Paul is calling us here Away from any reliance on ourselves, any 
any other means of attaining peace and calling them back to Christ. I think that's really the, the summary. I don't know if I, maybe I don't have the slide there, but uh, if I were to summarize this text, be careful what you rely on in your resume. <laughs> be careful what you rely on in your resume. When you, you put this forward to get a job, right? Say, this is why I should get the job. Or in this case, this is, this is why I deserve to, to, uh, to, to enter into to, to, to heaven. This is why I deserve to be a, uh, have, a, have a, a right relationship with God. Be careful what you rely on in your resume, what you put forward as the grounds for your relationship with God.